Welcome to The Cantankerous Catholic with Joe Sixpack, the every Catholic guy. Listen to Joe tackle the really tough moral issues, current events, and politics from a Catholic perspective. Now here's Joe Sixpack, the every Catholic guy. Hello again, Sixpackers, and welcome back to The Cantankerous Catholic, Episode 65. Just a few headlines from news stories over the last several days should set the tone for this episode. Let's look at just five of them. 1. Ohio says religious gatherings are essential business. Bishops cancel Mass anyway. 2. Chicago Archdiocese demands bishops' approval for emergency baptisms. 3. Cardinal bishops ban confession in response to coronavirus pandemic. 4. U.S. bishops must address charges of Catholic Relief Services collaborating with evil. 5. Churches auto-persecuting its own members in coronavirus pandemic. Almost every diocese in America and around the world has suspended the holy sacrifice of the Mass. As we see by these headlines, some dioceses have suspended other sacraments as well. Archbishop Wenton Gregory of Washington, D.C. wrote, My number one priority as your archbishop is to ensure the safety and health of all who attend our masses, the children in our schools, and those we welcome through our outreach and services. On its face, Archbishop Gregory's statement sounds right and reasonable. But is he right? That's the question we have to answer this week. Tired of false or confusing doctrine? Want to learn or teach the Catholic faith of our fathers without dilution or compromise? Then it's time for Tradivox. Tradivox is a Catholic nonprofit working with Bishop Athanasius Schneider to restore the perennial catechism of the Catholic Church. Scores of official catechisms from across the last millennium are being harnessed in an amazing new platform for teaching the faith today. Learn more and support this much-needed project at www.tradivox.com. Tradivox, giving voice to tradition. Before I analyze Archbishop Gregory's statement, I want to first talk a little bit about the Mass and other sacraments, because I think most Catholics tend to forget just what the Mass really is. We certainly don't have time here to go through everything in the Bible regarding the Mass, but I think it's important to see what the Bible tells us about how God prepared His people for the fulfillment of the Old Covenant with the New Covenant. When we read the evolution of the Old Covenant, it makes me think about a woman with a child in her womb. A child begins as a tiny microscopic zygote. Then the zygote begins to develop a brain, heart, and human features in the nurturing environment of the mother's body, just as God ordained it to be. Then the child emerges from the mother's womb as a precious baby the parents love and hold more dear than anything else they have. The Mass was given birth in the upper room on Holy Thursday night, but it began as a zygote too. This is more than evident from the Old Testament, especially the Pentateuch, or the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. 
God prepared his people for the Mosaic Covenant by merely teaching them that he was the one true God who was alone deserving of their worship, and teaching them the barest essentials for a moral life. Then along comes Moses and the Mosaic Covenant that gave us the Ten Commandments, the visible development of the child, so to speak. The third commandment is, remember to keep holy the Lord's Day. Most Catholics just think of this commandment as a divinely mandated obligation to go to church on Sunday and holy days. But to the Jews at the time of Moses, it meant revolutionary change in their spiritual lives. First, God established the Aaronic priesthood from the tribe of Levi through Moses. God didn't just establish the Aaronic priesthood and let it go on its own way. No, he was very detailed in establishing the Aaronic priesthood, right down to even the clothing they'd wear in public and for their liturgical duties. Then God began telling the Aaronic priesthood through Moses that he wanted sacrifices made for specific purposes and as worship for him. He established a number of sacrifices the Aaronic priesthood was to make on behalf of all God's chosen people. These sacrifices certainly involve flesh, which is what we commonly think of when we hear the word sacrifice, but the sacrifices God demanded weren't limited to flesh alone. There were also sacrifices of grain, bread, grapes, and wine. The only problem with these sacrifices is that they weren't perfect sacrifices. Sacrifice to God became necessary when Adam and Eve offended God and brought original sin into the world in the Garden of Eden. God established formal sacrifices under the Mosaic Covenant, each for very specific purposes, but we see sacrifices made to God from the very beginning. But none of the sacrifices before or after the Mosaic Covenant were still perfect. Because God is infinite, original sin has infinite implications. Mere finite mortals and their finite sacrifices couldn't atone for the infinite offense of original sin to the infinite God. Only an infinite sacrifice could atone for the sins man has committed against God. At the exactly perfect time in human history, God sent his Son into the world as a man. Jesus is a mystery of faith in and of himself. A mystery of faith is a truth we can't fully understand, but it doesn't violate reason, and we accept it on the authority of the one who revealed it, who in this case is God himself. Jesus is true God and true man through what theologians throughout church history have agreed to call the hypostatic union. In other words, Jesus is true God because he has the same divine nature as God the Father. He's true man because he was born of a woman just like any man. Also like any man, Jesus has a human body and a human soul. Although Jesus is true man, he was still free from all sin, both original and personal, because he's also true God and God can't sin. He has a divine and human nature, but he's only one person, the second person of the Holy Trinity, and a person is who you are. The nature is merely a thing possessed by a person. Like the Aaronic priesthood established under Moses, Jesus established a new covenant priesthood through his apostles, and it was no coincidence that there were twelve of them, just as there are twelve tribes of Israel. 
At the same time he established the priesthood, he also perfected all the old covenant sacrifices in the very first mass in the upper room on Holy Thursday night. He took all the old covenant sacrifices of flesh, bread, and wine and made these finite sacrifices perfect and eternal in the holy sacrifice of the mass. The only thing Jesus had left to do was actually complete the eternal sacrifice by acting as high priest and making the eternal sacrifice to God the Father. In other words, he was the infinite sacrifice offered to God the Father in reparation for the infinite offense of original sin. His resurrection was proof that everything he had taught and promised was from God, but it was the crucifixion and death of Jesus that actually made everything valid and real, making all things right again between God and man, just as it was before original sin. The resurrection completed that eternal sacrifice. The Mass is our primary line of communication with God. It's at one and the same time the perfect prayer of the chosen people of God, we Catholics, the sacrifice of the cross made present on our altars, a memorial of Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension, and a sacred banquet where we receive him in Holy Communion. It's at the Mass that we were perfectly united to all three persons of the Trinity and all three planes of the Church's existence, the Church victorious in heaven, the church suffering in purgatory, and the church militant here on earth. Our imperfect human eyes can't see what's happening at Mass because we're still on our journey to perfection, but the parish church is really incredibly crowded. It's filled with angels, the saints, all those justified under the old covenant, our Catholic ancestors from 2,000 years, and our departed loved ones who died in a state of grace and were saved. All these are present to worship and adore Almighty God. They're worshiping Him right along with us. The Holy Sacrifice of the Mass is the one time when we know beyond a doubt that there are supernatural and miraculous events taking place on earth. And the Mass isn't just happening when your priest celebrates it daily and when you go on Sunday, but it's taking place every hour of the day around the globe. Only in the Catholic Church is God worshipped as he himself demands, and it's being done constantly, 24 hours a day. Jesus didn't stop with giving us this perfect sacrifice we call the Mass. The Mass made reparation for original sin, but original sin's effects are still with us because we brought them on ourselves. As a result, we're tempted and we still sin. To remedy that so we can be made worthy of receiving him in communion, after completing the perfect sacrifice, Jesus gave us the sacrament of penance, or confession. On the first Easter Sunday night, Jesus appeared to the apostles, who were hiding from the Pharisees behind locked doors in the upper room. He said to them, As the Father has sent me, I also send you. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Jesus gave us this one way to have our sins forgiven. People who lie to themselves by believing all they have to do is tell God they're sorry for the sins they commit aren't forgiven at all because Jesus specifically told his apostles how he wanted sins forgiven. 
sin committed after baptism can only be forgiven by the priest and confession because that's the way Jesus established it, period. Jesus also gave priests the power to prepare us for our death through the anointing of the sick, as we see in the book of James. Sometimes God wills that the anointing of the sick heal people, but it's usually a powerful priestly preparation for death. That's why it's commonly referred to as the last rites. Now that I've given you all this background, it's time to answer the original question. As I said earlier, Archbishop Wynton Gregory wrote, My number one priority as your Archbishop is to ensure the safety and health of all who attend our Masses, the children in our schools, and those we welcome through our outreach and services. Is that his first priority? Should it be? Short answer, no, this isn't his first priority, nor is it any bishop's first priority. Every bishop in the world has one first priority, and that's the salvation of souls in his flock, period. All other concerns are secondary priorities. No matter what happens in our daily lives, and no matter whether you think this pandemic is blown out of proportion or something the world should be panicked over, the fact of the matter is that God is in control. We don't need less masses, but rather more of them. The supernatural is what we need because the natural just ain't working. And we certainly don't need bishops banning confessions or the anointing of the sick. How many souls, souls the bishops are responsible for, have slipped into eternity completely unprepared because they've been denied an opportunity to avail themselves of these two eternal life-saving sacraments? I've read where some bishops have said they must obey legitimate authority, and that authority has told them that they can't have mass or otherwise allow priests to serve the people. This attitude is diametrically opposed to Catholic morality under the Fourth Commandment. Under the Fourth Commandment, every citizen must love and be in the service to his country, obey just laws, respect the legitimate authority, pay his taxes, exercise his right to vote, and defend his country. The key phrase in this is obey just laws. We're obligated only to obey laws that comport to God's law, even under the threat of imprisonment or death. Prohibiting the exercise of our holy and ancient faith violates God's laws, so the bishops are required by moral law alone to defy the civil orders that restrict the Mass and other sacraments. Of course, this would require backbone, something our bishops have a long history of not having. Furthermore, the First Amendment of the Constitution protects the right to freedom of religion. The Constitution doesn't grant this right, but pledges to protect it. The Bill of Rights enumerates our inalienable rights, which are naturally endowed to us by God. So political leaders like that idiot governor from Virginia who's sending violators who attend church to jail for a year and finding them $2,500 is in criminal violation of the Constitution. Under ordinary circumstances, all of us are obligated to assist at Mass on Sundays and Holy Days, but these circumstances aren't ordinary. Before the Democratic governor of Illinois shut down church gatherings in that state, Bishop Pap Rocky of Springfield dispensed with the obligation to assist at Mass, while at the same time instructing his priests to celebrate more Masses. 
This was the best, most proper response because the people have a right to determine what level and risk of exposure to the coronavirus should be for them individually. However, this same great and loyal bishop is wrong not to be defying the governor's lockdown order, in my opinion. I'll tell you why. Although I have no way of knowing what's in the mind of any man, I suspect Bishop Paprocki is thinking that modern Catholics are so poorly educated in the doctrines of the faith that they'd be scandalized if he defied the state's orders. While I can understand that logic, I think it's wrong. Bishop Paprocki's missing an opportunity to teach his flock about truths of the faith they've never heard. He can stand up, teach them, and show them what extent a shepherd is willing to go to for his sheep. Bishop Paprocki is a perfect opportunity here to teach his laity just what exactly the Mass is and why we need it now more than ever. In turn, at his gentle urging, this would substantially increase the number of confessions made and absolutions given. Furthermore, he can use this situation to cause his people to have an all-new appreciation for the Catholic faith, thus encouraging and motivating them to learn it as they should. Make no mistake about it, Bishop Paprocki is one of the nation's finest bishops. He's proven over and over again that his first priority is the salvation of souls in his diocese. His decision not to defy the Illinois governor is a pastoral one, and I can't second-guess him. He has the fullness of holy orders and its accompanying sacramental graces. I don't. Still, I can offer my opinion. By depending on ourselves, our medical professionals and first responders, and our government to defeat this global medical threat, we're once again rejecting God. If we would cry out to God as a nation and beg Him for help, He could miraculously make this coronavirus disappear. But even if He chose to allow the coronavirus to continue its devastating effects here and around the world, we as a people, Catholics and non-Catholics alike, deserve it. Either way, though, we need public mass to resume. God, nature, and the common sense of the faith demand it. Do you have an apostolate you'd like other Catholics to learn about? Maybe you have an e-commerce business and you want to build sales while supporting a Holy Orthodox apostolate. Whatever you want to advertise, The Cantankerous Catholic is your portal to success. The Cantankerous Catholic isn't even a year into broadcasting its weekly shows and we're already listened to in 16 countries, all 50 states, and 101 major cities throughout the U.S. and Canada. Our listener demographics are the most sought after for advertisers. The Cantankerous Catholic avatar is 53% men and 47% women ages 18 to 34. The show's average growth rate through 2019 was 24% per week, and our listeners are Orthodox Catholics who reject heterodox Catholic positions and political correctness. Relative to other broadcasts and online advertising, our rates are extremely cost-effective and inexpensive. You can advertise in each show's show notes, in the recorded episode itself, our weekly newsletter that announces each new episode, all of these media together, or in any combination. So contact us today by filling out the form on the Sponsor Kit page at cantankerouscatholic.com or email Joe Sixpack, the Every Catholic Guy, directly at joe at cantankerouscatholic.com. 
to learn how you can begin driving traffic to whatever you want to promote while helping to support a worthy, orthodox, and hard-hitting apostolate. Joe Sixpack, the every Catholic guy, wants to make sure you're informed about all the Catholic news you need to know. Here's Joe Sixpack's top five Catholic news picks for this episode. Catholic news pick number five. Hats off to Breitbart News. A survey released from Lind EDU reveals that Americans were already on shaky financial ground even before the impact of the coronavirus outbreak. The personal finance website recently surveyed 1,000 Americans ages 18 and older and found that many have credit card and student loan debt and are not saving or investing for their future fiscal security. This is exactly what I was talking about last week. Nobody forced anyone to go into debt, so none of these people have a right to complain. Americans have had it too good for too long. They want what they want, how they want it, and they want it now. So much for adulthood in America. You can read the whole story by clicking the link in my show notes. Catholic News Pick number four. Hats off to Catholic News Agency. Virginia Governor Ralph Northam has made it a criminal offense to attend church services of more than 10 people. An executive order went into effect in the Commonwealth on Tuesday, March 24, making any non-essential gatherings a misdemeanor punishable by up to a year in jail or a fine of $2,500. This liberty-crushing demonic Democrat is the physician governor who wants to murder already-born babies and call it post-birth abortion. He's forfeited his right to be a doctor, he's forfeited his right to be an elected official, and if he succeeds in getting his infanticide measures passed, he'll have forfeited his right to life. You can read the whole story by clicking the link in my show notes. Catholic News Pick Number 3 Hats off to Catholic News Agency. A first-class relic of St. John Henry Newman was stolen from the Birmingham Oratory sometime in late January, the Oratory announced in its newsletter. You can read the whole story by clicking the link in my show notes. Catholic Catholic News Pick number number 2 Hats off to LifeSite News. A former nurse testified before the U.S. Senate Judiciary Committee that some babies are born alive during failed abortions and left to die, something that would be remedied if an anti-affanticide bill became law. You can read the whole story by clicking the link in my show notes. Catholic News Pick Number 1 Hats off to Catholic News Agency. Catholics in the U.S. are pushing for a national bipartisan bill that would limit the interest rate on payday and car title loans. It's about time. You can read the whole story by clicking the link in my show notes. Warning to snowflakes. If he thinks it, he says it. It's time now for Joe Sixpack's Common Sense Catholic Commentary. Last week, we made it halfway through the four marks of the Catholic Church, the marks given to demonstrate her founder is Jesus Christ, God himself. Today, we'll finish with the marks we call Catholic and Apostolic. Catholic is a word meaning universal. 
that is, the church is for all men of all times and all places, because our church alone is universal in time, doctrine, and extent, she existed in perfect continuity from the time of Christ and will last until his second coming. She teaches all his gospel and administers all his divine means of salvation. She's not confined to any particular region or nation, but is widespread among all nations of the world. The word Catholic doesn't denote equality. You can't be Anglo, Eastern, or liberal Catholic. You can't be more or less Catholic. You're either Catholic or you're not. Eastern Orthodoxy isn't Catholic in time because they've existed only since the 11th century with the Great Schism. The Protestant churches can't be Catholic in time because they date from the 16th, 17th, 18th, or 19th centuries. The outside churches aren't Catholic in faith because they've broken away from the center of unity, the Holy See, and deny many of Christ's laws and doctrines. They're not Catholic in extent because at the beginning of their secession, they identified themselves with some particular nation, Germany, the Scandinavian countries, England, Russia, Bulgaria, Romania, Serbia, Greece, etc., Mere profession of a creed doesn't constitute someone a Catholic, and many others do indeed use the Apostles' Creed, because the different separatist churches read their own particular opinions into it. A number of different sects scattered around the world doesn't constitute a Catholic church. Catholicism implies a divine unity of government, faith, and worship. The early church fathers often declared that the church is Catholic in their extant writings from the first four centuries. They constantly tell us the church is Catholic because she was spread over the entire known world and teaches everywhere, universally and completely, all the doctrines which ought to come to men's knowledge. Verify this for yourself by reading what was written by Irenaeus, Origen, Opatus, and Augustine online or at a good library. The Catholic Church is Catholic in time because while we can accurately fix the date of every heresy and schism, no one can assign any date to her origin except the day of Pentecost. The Catholic Church is Catholic in extent, outnumbering any one sect. In fact, she's greater than all of them put together. Mere numbers, of course, wouldn't constitute Catholicity, but the Church's de facto numerical superiority points to her de jure Catholicity, her universal divine commission to spread the one faith among all nations. The Catholic Church's Catholicity is demonstrated in that she alone teaches all that Christ taught, and she alone administers the means of salvation established by Jesus, which are the sacraments. She's not confined to any region or nation, but she's active in every nation on earth. Indeed, until 1517, there was no other Christian religion besides the Catholic Church. All others are merely cheap imitations of the real thing. For a church to be apostolic, it must be able to trace its roots in unbroken succession back to the original apostles. In fact, before giving his divine commission to the apostles, Christ insists on his divine commission from his Father. As the Father has sent me, even so I send you. The only church that can rightly claim that its origin isn't due to a break with the past is the Catholic Church. 
The European Protestants broke with the apostolic succession at the time of Luther's revolt, and the English Protestants, when King Henry VIII made Parker the first Protestant Archbishop of Canterbury. Since that time, we've seen what amounts to religious entropy. When early Catholics wanted to use the most convincing argument to prove the true church, they always appealed to her apostolic origin. We find them compiling lists of legitimate bishops, especially with regard to the Apostolic See of Rome. As early as the 2nd century, we find the Syrian Hegipasus and the Greek Irenaeus, Bishop of Lyons, maintaining that the source and standard of the faith is the apostolic tradition, handed down in an unbroken succession of bishops. Irenaeus writes, But since it would be very long in such a volume as this to count up the successions, that is, a series of bishops, in all the churches, which we call dioceses today, we confound those who in any way, whether through self-pleasing or vainglory, or through blindness or evil opinion, gather together otherwise than they ought, by pointing out the tradition arrived from the apostles of the greatest, most ancient, and universally known church, founded and established by the two most glorious apostles, Peter and Paul, and also the faith declared to men through which the succession of bishops comes down to our times. It's true that other churches make a claim to apostolicity, but their claims are always erroneous and sometimes even ridiculous. For example, several members of the Church of Christ, when defending their apostolic origins, have stated to me that their name proves their origin. What? That might work for someone who's incapable of logic and reason, but most of us find that argument ludicrous. A book could be written on this topic alone. Indeed, many books have been written on the topic of apolicity. I urge you to study this topic, because you'll discover that only the Catholic Church can trace her roots back to the apostles and Jesus Christ himself. What did Billy D. Williams the celebrated American artist Norman Rockwell and famed comedian Jimmy Durante have to do with one man's journey from conservative Judaism to the cross. Everything. Marty Barrick has lived one of the most fascinating conversion journeys ever told. In Calvary Road, Marty's biography, you can read about Marty's military service with Billy D. Williams, how Norman Rockwell helped him pass a college course, how in his deep abiding love for his late wife, Marty helped Irene travel the road of sanctity. How the times are quickly reaching critical mass for fulfilling prophecy concerning the Jews. And much, much more. Get your copy of Calvary Road by Marty Barrick today in print or ebook on Amazon, Apple Books, Barnes & Noble, and Kobo. I believe a really great way to teach the faith is through stories, parables, and anecdotes. So here's today's story. I have two stories for you this week that demonstrate two ways God answers prayer in His wisdom. The first story is about a 20-year-old young lady named Joan who worked in a New York office in the 1950s. She was supporting her invalid mother, but her salary wasn't enough to pay for all the medicine and medical bills. She made one novena after another for a raise, but God didn't seem to want to answer her prayers. Joan finally made up her mind that if God didn't answer her current novena, she'd never pray again. 
On the ninth day of the novena, Joan went to work bright and happy. She just knew God was going to honor her request for a raise. Her boss called her into his office, but rather than give her a raise, he fired her. He explained that his niece had come to the city, and he was giving Joan's job to her, so he didn't need her help anymore. Joan was discouraged and angry with God, so she didn't want to talk to him at all. That evening after dinner, Joan was reading the paper. She read a horrifying story under the headline, Twelve People Die in Explosion. She read that the explosion had taken place in the building where she had worked, on the very same floor. Among the list of dead were her boss and his niece. Tears filled Joan's eyes and she immediately fell to her knees. She cried out to God, Oh God, please forgive me. I'm sorry. From the bottom of my heart, I thank you for not answering my prayer. The following week, Joan found a better job that enabled her to continue her mother's medical care. The other story is about a boy who skinned his knee. By night, the scrape had begun to hurt, but not enough to bother a 13-year-old boy. Two days later, the pain was so intense that someone was dispatched to get old Doc Conklin. It's not likely we can save the leg, the old doctor said. If it gets worse, we'll certainly have to cut it off. The boy heard what the doctor said and called to his brother Ed. He pleaded with Ed not to let anyone take his leg. Ed promised and determinedly stood guard outside the boy's door. But the fever mounted and the doctor said that only a miracle could save the boy's life. That's when the family took to their knees. Mother, father, and Ed prayed nonstop, rising only to go about the necessary farm work. They prayed continuously, and on the third day there were four brothers who joined in the prayer vigil. The next day, when the doctor arrived, he was astonished to find the swelling down and the boy sleeping normally for the first time. In three weeks, Dwight David Eisenhower, the 34th president of the United States who'd led American troops to victory in World War II, walked again. When you pray, it's not so we can vainly attempt to change God's plans, but to fulfill those plans and obtain what he's decided to grant in prayer. Jesus said, ask and you shall receive. If you neglect to ask, then you can't expect to receive. Pray with confidence and humility. Above all, pray with resignation to God's holy will. In other words, leave everything in God's capable hands because he knows best. Joan was most certainly taught this in her experience. That's it for this episode, Six Packers. Be sure to come back and listen to next week's episode. If you like The Cantankerous Catholic, be sure to write a review wherever you download it so other like-minded Catholics can more easily find it. And be sure to visit my show notes to get links to other things relevant to this episode. As long as you're on the show notes, drop a comment at the bottom to let me know what you think of this episode or to suggest topics for future episodes. If you happen to be on cantankerouscatholic.com for the show notes, download a free copy of The Best of What We Believe, Why We Believe It, Volume 1, and visit the Joe's Stuff page to get copies of my other books and some really neat coffee mugs. 
I think you six-packers are the cream of the Catholic crop, and I really appreciate you listening. Just remember, though, comfort and conviction don't live on the same lot. This has been The Cantankerous Catholic with Joe Sixpack, the every Catholic guy. Thanks for subscribing, and be sure to visit cantankerouscatholic.com to get your free copy of Joe's popular book, The Best of What We Believe, Why We Believe It.